mystical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Today we're bringing you the first of the Burning Man 2005 talks and it's the one given on Friday afternoon by Daniel Pinchbeck. But before I play it, I, I guess I ought to <laughs> break the bad news to you right now. I'm sorry to have to report to you that there were only three or four of the talks that were actually recorded this year. The only talks I know of that uh, we were able to capture were the ones by Daniel Pinchbeck and uh, Eric Davis. Plus, I think there's part of one of Bruce Damer's talks and uh, Raphael's talk, although I don't have those two in hand yet. Bruce tells me he's... Uh, planning on re-recording his again in a studio, so hopefully we'll have access to that and be able to get it out to you as well. There's uh, some more I'd like to say about this year's burn, but I'll, I'll save that until after we hear Daniel's talk, because I know that's what you really came here for today. And as you already know, since you've all obviously downloaded this uh, podcast, the, the title of Daniel's presentation this year is How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Dimensional Shift. Now, after uh, Daniel's talk, I'll, I'll give you some more information on what he's up to these days and how to find him on the web. But now here is Daniel Pinchbeck delivering his Maps Planque Norte lecture at the 2005 Burning Man Festival. Things to be doing here. I mean, this dome is incredible, and you all look really amazing, and it's just so so fun to be up here and talking. Um, uh, so I wrote a book that was called uh, Breaking Open the Head, and uh, the book is both like personal and kind of philosophical. And it sort of charts my um, shift. I mean, I started as a kind of secular uh, materialist journalist and um, got interested in uh, studying psychedelic drugs when I was in my late 20s and shamanism and uh, went to a bunch of indigenous cultures to explore their rituals. I went down to Gabon in West Africa and was initiated into the uh, Bwiti tribe, taking Iboga. And I visited the Sequoia Indians uh, in Ecuador, taking Ayahuasca. Um, and the Mazatecs uh, visited in Mexico and Oaxaca, and uh, also explored, you know, more sort of non-ritualistic, hedonistic use of psychedelics. And uh, the whole experience was an incredible opening for me, um, opening me to all of this sort of new information, uh, for, you know, visionary experiences, um, and it really, it really completely changed my perspective on reality. Um, over time, and um, I ended up, you know, sort of converting from the materialist perspective that I that I'd started from to, to a, um, you know, kind of thinking that the shamanic uh, vision of reality was was absolutely more accurate than the uh, Western materialist view, and um, you know that was a very profound shift, and it, and it was also kind of a um, frightening thing to contemplate because. You know, our society is so invested in uh, industrialization and materialism. You know, it just seemed that suddenly this this huge aspect of reality, which was the whole kind of intuitive, uh, magical uh, domain, had just been negated by by our system. Uh, and um, so I just really had to mull on that for a long time. And that kind of led me to start working on the second book, which is uh, called 2012: The Return of Quetzalcoatl. 
which is hopefully coming out. Well, it's definitely going to come out in the spring, April or May. Um, and um, basically, I started to take seriously. It's like if I if I'd converted to this shamanic perspective, then I sort of had to take seriously what all these cultures said about uh, what's happening in the world now and uh, what's going to happen. And I especially got interested in the uh, Hopi uh, prophecies and uh, the material on the Mayan calendar. Um, and, and you know, part of the whole process for me was like a, was was um, this kind of personal um, process where, as as I got deeper into exploring all of this stuff, I had to learn also to take synchronicities that occurred in my own life uh, increasingly seriously, and just become you know more and more tuned to. Uh, sort of patterns that emerged um, over time, and um, so, for instance, one thing that happened to me is I'd, I'd edited a, a book that a friend of mine wrote. It was a book-length poem about ranting against corporate globalization and the oil companies, and uh, also talking about using ayahuasca, and also talking about 2012 uh, in the Mayan calendar. How many people know 2012 or have read about it a bit? So okay, so some of you haven't. So basically, um, uh, I guess the, the first person to kind of explore it was um, Jose Arguelles. But the uh, Mayans were a culture that was really obsessed with uh, time, and uh, they had these incredible calendars that were they were sort of like uh, synchronometers, kind of uh, following the movements of the planets, um, and just um, measuring huge cycles of time. Um, Gosh, is there no way we can let a few more people in? I just feel so sad to see all those like faces out there. Um, okay. Anyway, um, yeah, you, you want to come sit on the podium? That's one of some. That's great idea. I don't know. What's that? Oh yeah, coming from the side. That's a great idea. Coming from the side, you can sit up on the podium. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a stairs in the back. Yeah. A lot. It's pretty strong to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so anyway, um, so I was I looked at this, um, and I'll get back to the Mayan stuff. But basically, th a lot of their cosmology seems to point to this um, end date in 2012, December 21st, 2012, as being this incredibly uh, significant um, moment, uh, and they really uh, memorialized it in their uh, stone structures. Uh, and uh, kind of pointed towards it and alluded to it in a lot of different in different ways and different levels. So, um, um, so I was editing Michael's book. So we talked about 2012, and for him, his thing was that oh, you know, we're headed for this total industrial apocalypse, and uh, sort of envisioning you know what would happen when the oil ran out and the whole thing went to shit. And and I sort of put off editing the book because I didn't really want to deal with it. And I was in my house in downtown Manhattan, and finally I was like, all right, I've got to work on Michael's book. And it was in the morning, uh, you know, I opened the book, finally started, you know, thinking about it and making line notes. And after about 15 minutes, there was this weird thud outside of the window. And uh, we opened the blinds, and there were the World Trade Towers burning down. And the book was already titled World on Fire. So that, for me, was one of many, like, really significant kind of synchronicities that um, just led me to feel that whatever investigation I was making uh, was somehow a really important, important one. And um, that there was, uh, you know, something to this whole Mayan uh, calendar stuff, and um, and so so basically, I'd, I'd um, started to think about, you know, this whole shamanic reality and wondering how 
There might be, if it was legitimate, I thought there had to be more manifestations of it in the, in the real world. Um, and kind of almost out of uh, giving up. I, I also got very into, after, after editing Michael's book, worried about the whole industrial, you know, the sort of collapse of, of the uh, ec ecological systems and the sense that we are headed for this incredible breakdown point uh, through the global climate change and the depletion of the oil and so on. Um, so in the midst of my kind of despair over all this stuff, I started looking into the crop circles, which I'd always kind of assumed were a hoax. But, you know, when I began to look at them, I realized that they developed into this huge phenomenon that had become incredibly uh, complex. And uh, the glyphs themselves were just amazingly uh, beautiful and extraordinary. And I got an assignment from Wired magazine to write about the crop circles. So I had an you know, opportunity to talk to all these people who had been researching them for years, you know, people who completely debunked them, scientists who had also been studying them and um, had done work on, like, how the plants were affected in the formations. Um, and the, the one guy I talked to who I, who I kind of enjoyed the most was this guy, Michael Glickman, who um, was a former architect who'd moved to England and retired and spent 10 years just studying the crop circles. And when I talked to him, you know, he was like, look, this is what I think is going on with these, with these things. You know, I, you know he, he ran down a little bit why he didn't think they could possibly be hoaxes, which, which I can explain in more detail if you, if you want. Um, and, then, and then he said that um, he felt that they were indicating a uh, dimensional shift um, and that this, this uh, shift uh, was going to culminate in 2012 and that some of the crop circles had been synchronized, had shown um, you know, dates relative to the Mayan calendar, uh, including one that had appeared in the, in the late 90s, which was a grid that had the, the number of squares in the grid were exactly the number of weeks from that point until the end of 2012. Um, so um, so he gave me, I mean, then I went to England, to Glastonbury, where he gave, he gave a conference, and I heard him give this talk where he really went into his kind of signs of the dimensional shift, which I've kind of kept thinking about and just kind of elaborating on over time. And um, the, what he felt were some of the signs of what's going on is the, uh, is the experience, the, the sense of time speeding up, that it seems that more and more events are happening in a, in a shorter and shorter amount of linear time. Uh, there's this kind of compaction taking place. Um, and, he, and he talked about how it seemed that there was um, increasingly kind of a, a, a sort of intensification of the psychic nature of reality through things like synchronicities, uh, through events that would sort of violate uh, Newtonian Cartesian kind of principles, uh, just little light events, almost humorous events that would happen. I mean, he showed these photographs of sheep forming this like perfect circle in Scotland um, and stuff like that. He also talked about, uh, he felt that the karmic rubber band was snapping back faster and faster, so it was kind of like rewards and punishments were being meted out at a higher and higher speeds. You know? So it was like you could no longer cover up anything. Uh, you could no longer escape from, from the consequences of your actions, which to me was very interesting because if you think of the, the word uh, apocalypse, um, which I would also say, you know, if, if this hypothesis is correct, this time would be the apocalypse. That word literally means uh, uncovering or revealing. Uh, and there is a sense that nothing can be hidden anymore. You know, I mean, um, you know, we can see Clinton, George W., Jr. and Sr., you know, all praying together at the body of the dead pope, you know. I mean, uh, you know, we can just see the sort of ridiculous, overt manifestations of the kind of corruption of the whole system. Um, just so self-evidently now, it's, you know, they don't even try to hide the conspiracy and the, and the cynicism anymore. You know, um, 
And um, yeah, I mean, the way and the way I began to think about it was that, in a sense, it feels that um, material reality itself is somehow becoming increasingly uh, psychically responsive and uh, slightly less materially dense. Um, um, how many people feel that those kind of resonate with their experience? Just as a yeah. Um, and another and another aspect of it, which I think is really crucial, uh, is the sort of uh, integration of scientific knowledge and kind of uh, esoteric or shamanic wisdom traditions. So that I mean, and this has been like an undercurrent since the 70s with you know Kapler's book, The Tao of Physics. But that really like you know, and the, this movie, What the Bleep Do We Know, was another kind of step in that in that direction. That really the, the science can be can be seen as really supporting uh, kind of mystical. Uh, or esoteric vision of reality, um, and it can just be elaborated uh, in, in deeper and deeper ways. Um, there's one physicist called Amit Goswami, this Indian physicist, who's interviewed in What the Bleep Do We Know, and you know he's really looking at how quantum physics provides kind of like a roadmap for thinking about, you know, reincarnation, like how how uh, an individual could could uh, reincarnate through kind of like uh, quantum memory. Um, so it just seems like. We're, you know, on firmer and firmer ground when we, um, you know, want to stake the, our claim that there is a kind of spiritual or metaphysical uh, reality. Um, and then also, as we were talking about the other day, Rick Straussman's work with DMT, dimethyltryptamine, uh, which he believed was the spirit molecule. Uh, he, he looked at um, the, uh, I, the, the fact that, according to the Buddhists, the soul reincarnates uh, seven weeks after death. And uh, the, the pineal gland is formed in fetal development uh, 49 days after conception, and that's where DMT is produced. And so he did this whole study on DMT, um, where you know if you take if you take DMT, you're, you're shot into this completely alternative dimension, kind of higher dimension of reality. And his thesis is that DMT is this kind of conductive medium that uh, brings the soul uh, into the body, and also at death, like a flood of DMT is released, which causes you know, the life review and, and, and the sort of near-death experiences that people talk about. So, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff like that. There's this in increasing ability to kind of elaborate and establish at least, at least good hypotheses of how science can be integrated with this kind of shamanic uh, perception of reality. So, um, let's see. So, yeah, so I got more and more involved in studying the crop circles. Um, and... Um, you know, it really seems to me at this point that it's the most extraordinary anomalous event that's happening on an incredibly large scale that people are just mostly not capable of paying attention to. And in that sense, it's very much like uh, psychedelics, uh, which, you know, the mainstream culture just totally ignores, or the Times will still call them like toys of the hippie generation. So there's this kind of uh, willful repression or suppression of something that is so super interesting and important. Um, and especially this summer, the crop circles. And I, su I suggest if you want to check it out, there's a website called cropcircleconnector.com, and you can see all the crop circles from, from this last summer. And a lot of them are very specifically uh, Mayan-related, uh, using Mayan imagery, and, and uh, people have been sort of decoding uh, the kind of, there seems to be encoded information about certain dates and times in there relating to the next few years. Um, and basically, um, I mean, just, just briefly, uh, this biophysicists have, have done studies of the plants and the formations and have published papers in peer-reviewed science journals that the uh, plants, uh, the way they were affected, would have to be caused by single-point sources of electromagnetic radiation coming from above. 
uh, because they kind of uh, they, they do this kind of heliotropianism and they find these kind of they, they create these kind of strange bulbs and other stuff. They've done all this documentation of how they grow after after they're affected. Um, and also the hoaxers, the ones who claim to be making the formations, uh, really are not capable of making ones as pristine and precise and amazing as the ones that are unclaimed, uh, for the most part. I mean, there are obviously hoaxer, hoaxing going on, and there, there are man-made ones, but I think a very significant proportion of, of, of them really have no, um, have, have, have no, uh, you know, likely cause in, in, in uh, human action, as far as we know it. And uh, the, you know, the, the uh, whole phenomenon goes on every year, mainly in England. There's about 70 or 80 of them in England each year. And uh, they're just incredibly uh, complex and, and uh, beautiful. And uh, they seem to be indicating a lot of, uh, a lot of, kind of pieces of the puzzle. Um, and part of it is this kind of integration of science and esoteric wisdom. Uh, they'll use like uh, fractals. Um, that are based on, you know, esoteric symbols, like the Star of David turned into the Coke fractal, uh, where you kind of elaborate on the on the on the on the uh, the triangles, um, and um, yeah, and I actually went to England, and the other thing that became clear to me as I studied the phenomenon, I spent a whole summer in Glastonbury, rushing around, like whenever we heard of a new one, we would go that morning and look at it and talk to the farmer whose land it was on, and you know, all the people who were involved with the whole thing, you know, including some people who claimed to be hoaxing. Uh, it, it became clear to me that indeterminacy was part of the nature of the phenomenon and um, that actually the um, phenomenon was very much about uh, conscious intention uh, because after a while I began to see that everybody who came to be involved with this phenomenon how they sort of what they came in with their set and setting of ideas about it really structured what they would find so if they were skeptical and cynical about it they would find all this evidence that suggested they were human made um, you know, and they would sort of just just go for that evidence. If they were kind of new age bliss bunnies, they would feel like their light bodies were activated. They would see UFOs and angels and stuff like that. Um, but if you had like a kind of skeptical and open perspective on it, you know, or just an open perspective, you would sort of take in all these different levels of information um, until your sort of whole rational structure just collapsed. So it almost seemed like there was no single cause for some of the, the formations. Um, and for me, I was like sitting up with it like night after night, you know, unable to sleep after a while, just trying to puzzle out what this thing meant and was it real, was it, was it a joke, you know. And finally I got it that um, it, was, it was very much about um, indeterminacy and about paradox and learning how to work with paradox because we live in a very dualistic uh, culture where we always want to go to one side or the other side. We're very quick to want to close off the paradox. Um, or feel there's some kind of ultimate solution. And it seemed to me that part of what the crop circles were telling us was to uh, embrace paradox. Uh, and to actually, when you find the paradox, to go deeper in, rather than see seeking to resolve it uh, in some sort of simplified way. So it was definitely like a deep teaching, I mean, just exploring the whole phenomenon. And also the other thing that became clear to me is that if they are, which I think they are, manifestations of other levels of galactic intelligence, and probably the star nations that all the indigenous you know, cultures know about, um, what they're telling us is that when you get to that higher level of consciousness, you're not 
you know, I mean, I, I talked to this guy from the SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. He was like, oh, the crop circles are rubbish. You know, if there were any higher civilization that wanted to communicate with us, they would just leave uh, Encyclopedia Galactica on our doorstep with all the cool technology and stuff. And I was, you know, after a while, I was, you know, I realized that actually, if you reached a higher level of intelligence, you might be more interested in in, in play and uh, you know uh, art. You know, you might be more interested in, in subtlety and nuance rather than just some technical manual of, of space flight, you know. Um, so I think that's what they're telling us. It's like um, that, that we have to bring our, our full toolkit to the table, you know, um, if we want to reach, if we want to reach that, that sort of level. So um, for my book, I then began to look at um, a whole bunch of different kind of um, models or matrices or philosophical idea systems to think about what this dimensional shift means and how we can kind of conceptualize it and sort of bring it down to earth so we can kind of kind of uh, hold it and uh, integrate it with our own lives and our own perspective and what that kind of means. And um, one, one way, as I, as I mentioned, was this notion of apocalypse. Uh, and I, I read some really great uh, Jungian books um, by the disciple of Jung, uh, Edinger, one is called Archetypes of the Apocalypse, and he really sees the apocalypse as a um, an event in the psyche. He thinks that it's the um, it, it represents the coming, the self-realization of human consciousness, um, where you integrate all of the kind of uh, shadow material, you know, the dark and the light, so you don't have to project it anymore. But the first, you know, at first you have to go through that projection uh, situation, which is what we seem to be doing right now. You know, on a global scale, we're just constantly projecting our shadow uh, deeper and deeper into the material world and um, into socio-political, you know, uh, conflicts and so on. So we're not able to really uh, reconcile our situation. Um, so, you know, part of, yeah, so part of the apocalypse would be, you know, this revealing process. And if you look at the book of Revelation, in a way it's really like a tantric text. There are all these, um, you know, uh, really intense imagery, like the angels who are uh, dropping these kind of, you know, uh, vials of, of wrath are doing it from golden bowls, you know, and the whore of Babylon drinks the disgusting filth of fornication from a golden cup, which symbolizes kind of the vessel of the higher self. So it sort of it seems to be pointing out that you have to just work with all levels of, of the psyche and all levels of the shadow material and really do the work to uh, integrate that. Um, so then also I got really interested in the whole idea of the Kali Yuga, which is from uh, Hinduism. And according to Hinduism, there are four ages. Uh, there's a Golden Age, Silver Age, a Bronze Age, and an Iron Age. And each one is progressively uh, shorter uh, and faster and sort of darker than the previous one. And they say that we're in the Kali Yuga, which is the age of uh, materialism and kind of destruction. And um, Kali is the goddess of, uh, of, of sort of destruction. She's the sort of uh, wrathful entity who's dancing on a corpse, and she liberates through decapitating. Uh, and then I also got interested in the idea that um, Kali is also the wrathful manifestation of the goddess Shakti, which is the, you know, sort of... Um, deity of uh, energy, especially sexually, sexual energy, uh, in any form of manifestation. And her co consort is Shiva, who represents kind of universal consciousness, which is like the, the, ma the masculine principle. Uh, and it's their union which kind of holds reality together. Uh, so, uh, it, it, I mean, it's, it's in the book. I mean, it's lengthy to explain, but it seems to me like that the, the Kali energy that's, that's really part of our culture has to be deeply kind of interrogated and understood. And one way to think about it is if you think about um, archetypes, you know, um, 
when we have this, this notion of that our culture is materialistic, and the word materialism, the root of that word is mater, which means mother, you know, but it's like we've taken the, um, the sort of, the, the sort of uh, negative side of the mother archetype. So, you know, instead of, uh, you know, nurturing, it's kind of aggrieved, uh, possessive, uh, enraged. Um, and so we create, we've created these systems, we've inherited these systems of kind of false nurturing, or artificial nurturing, which are trying to constantly fill the void that's lacking because people didn't get this actual nurturing. So you have like fast food or sugar and starch substitutes. You know, in every way, it's the, it's, it's the culture's kind of shorting out uh, gratification. And um, so I, I think that the sort of understanding this kind of Cali energy um, is really, really important in how it manifests in personal lives and personal relationships and really trying to kind of bring, bring Shakti back into balance. Um, you know, is really intense, intense work that, um, you know, everybody here is involved with, whether they know it or not. <laughs> um, so then also I got interested in the Hopis who talk about the, um, this period being the transition from one world to another. They, have the, they say that this is the fourth world and that we're moving, on the, uh, moving into the fifth world. And there have been three previous worlds. I mean, it's more complicated than that because in a sense for them, all time is happening at the same time. They just have a different vision of time than we do, uh, which is embedded in their language in a way. Uh, and the Mayans and the Aztecs similarly talked about this being the age of the fifth sun transitioning to the sixth sun. Uh, and the Aztecs, who kind of inherited the Mayan culture, but kind of debased and degraded it, um, were doing huge amounts of human sacrifice at the end of their empire, I think as much as like 50 or 70,000 people a year, and they were doing this in order to keep the uh, sun alive. They felt that if they didn't do all the sacrifice, the, the sun would simply go out, and then they'd enter this transition period into, into the sixth sun. Um, so then I also got very, starting from my first book, I got very involved in the ideas of uh, Rudolf Steiner, who was an Austrian uh, clairvoyant uh, and visionary philosopher, who is just absolutely extraordinary and I think very, very important. Uh, I really feel that his ideas are going to be like as important for our time as Nietzsche's were for the 20th century, really giving us a, a different foundation and, and just an approach to reality on, on so many levels. Um, but Steiner also, has, Steiner uh, basically said that he realized that the mission of his life on earth was to bring the knowledge of reincarnation back to the West. And uh, this knowledge had been lost since the beginning of Christianity. Uh, and that just, just, um, just as Tibetan Buddhists talk about, you know, where they, they recognize these lamas who keep coming back in life after life, the, um, that had also been going on in the West because we'd lost the, the, the knowledge and the understanding that it, it had been happening without, you know, people recognizing it. So he did these books called Karmic Relationships where he would track particular Western individualities back through a whole series of uh, lives. Um, and uh, Steiner also said that not only do human beings reincarnate again and again, but the Earth itself reincarnates. And that this is the fourth incarnation of the Earth. That, that was his theme song, in fact, actually. Um, that this is the fourth incarnation of the Earth moving towards the fifth incarnation. Um, and he was very interesting that he actually elaborated um, some of the ways he thought the sort of physical organism and, and the spiritual organism would, would shift as we moved into this next incarnation of the Earth. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff about Steiner which is just totally amazing. I mean, um, one thing that relates to this mind thing for me is that he really conceived of, you know, the planets as not just being like hunks of, of matter kind of rolling around out there. They were more like kind of, uh, uh, kind of vibrational matrices or kind of uh, other modalities of consciousness. 
um, that we're in a kind of harmonic relationship to the earth, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, so, so, you know, this is very alchemical. Like the al alchemists talk about Mars representing certain forces and energies and Venus representing certain forces and energies. And in terms of the mind calendar stuff, there's a lot about Venus uh, and some about Mars that are significant. These two big Venus transits, one was in 2004, another I think it's right around 2012, um, that are kind of representing this kind of, you know, complex rebalancing of uh, male and female energies which I think is one of the key things that is sort of going on right now on the planet, and also one thing that everybody is sort of having to deal with and struggle with in their own personal lives. Um, and you know, when, when I read that, I mean, it sounds kind of, it may sound kind of hokey at first, but then if you look at, like, the relationship, for instance, between, like, the Earth and the Venus, their orbital relationships are incredibly harmonic. Um, I think, like... Um, I don't think I'm going to remember this right now, but there's basically these incredible phi-based relationships between the Earth and Venus, and um, I think one Venus turns very, very slowly on its on its axis, so that one um, one day on Venus is, is exactly two-thirds of an Earth year, and and the way Venus approaches the Earth when it's at its closest point, it always turns this same face to us, and it's in this perfect like phi-based relationship. And that's why, for the ancients, Venus was the planet of beauty, because it had this incredible harmonic relationship to the Earth. Um, I, I also studied this philosopher, Jean Gebser, who was a German philosopher who published a huge book in the 50s. It was his life's work called The Ever-Present Origin. And he also was very interested, I mean, for him, he saw it as, um, you know, the evolution of human consciousness in terms of uh, shifts or mutations into different consciousness structure, structures. And that um, there had been several previous ones in the past, which he called um, the archaic and the magic, the mythical. And then what we were in now was the mental rational consciousness structure, which had um, kind of subdivided reality in, in, in a very certain way and uh, you know, created a kind of linear model of time, which didn't really exist before. I mean, history is a kind of modern conception. You know, pre like the mythical civilizations had no conception of history as we conceive of it. They were conceiving of cycles, you know, or, or kind of spirals, you know. So Gebser theorized that there was going to be a movement uh, at, at a kind of crisis of anxiety. There would be a movement from this mental rational consciousness structure into what he called the integral or aperspectival consciousness, which would, be, which would be a different form of consciousness that kind of um, had a different relationship to time. Um, when, you know, just to elaborate on that a little bit, he talked about how um, um, you know, these previous forms, when they arose, each one kind of negated the one before. So the, the archaic or aboriginal form of time is like every day is the first day. I mean, there's a really good book by the aboriginals called Voices of the First Day. And uh, their whole thing was that you do rituals to just preserve reality in its, in its perfect manifestation. Uh, they never thought there was a fall or a decline you know, into, into an impure state. And then uh, the magical cultures had this kind of instant, like magic happens like instantaneously. You know, um, um, that was sort of their, their time. And then the mythical cultures sort of elaborated these huge cyclical times. So the Hindus have these yugas, which last hundreds of thousands of years. The Mayans had these great cycles that were 5,000 years and more. Um, the Egyptians had the procession of the equinox, which was a 26,000-year cycle, also linked to astronomical events. Um, so that's their way of looking at it. And then we have this linear kind of uh, spatialized model of time. Gebser's idea is that we became obsessed with uh, matter and space uh, in a way that nobody had been obsessed with it previously. Um, 
and that we we began to think that we could spatialize and materialize everything. So when we when we looked at time, we quantified and spatialized time in a way. So the whole way we think of time is that we think of there being, you know, amounts of time. You know, time runs out. You know, you don't have enough time. You're wasting time. You're spending time. We're constantly thinking of time as this quantity that somehow you can have enough of or not have enough of. Or actually, you can basically never have enough of it from the, from this this perspective. Um, but that for him is a wrong way of looking at time. That that's imposing this kind of three-dimensional model of space onto a kind of the kind of uh, you know uh, non-dimensional or or, or uh, multi-dimensional reality of time. Um, um, so um, this integral perspective would be an integration of all these previous relationships to time. You would know every every minute at the same minute that you were in that archaic reality where you were always at the first day, always at the creation point. You would also be in that magical uh, sort of instantaneous manifestation time, and you would also be in this mythical cyclical time, and you would also be in the mental rational linear time. And he's he's talked about these as being kind of veils um, that you would that you would be able to look through. Um, and to me, that feels you know very sort of copacetic with the Burning Man experience, which is this kind of manifestation of this archaic uh, revival and um, you know trying to get sort of back in, into contact with this kind of primordial forces and learning how to be more present again and not have this kind of uh, insane time complex which dominates uh, modern civilization and is kind of uh, th this flaw in our conception of time is kind of embodied in our technologies and also in our uh, calendar um, in, in very serious ways um, yeah, so, um, um, so that was Gebster's perspective. So basically, yeah, so I've been trying to integrate all these different models of um, what this dimensional shift is like, you know, wh why we're going through it. And, uh, you know, it's not like I know the, you know, exact endpoints, uh, but I think there's very significant information coming through about the Mayan calendar material. Um, this was first began to be elaborated by Jose Arguelles, who wrote a book called The Mayan Factor and a more recent book called Time in the Technosphere. Uh, I mean, a lot of people here probably know about, how many people here know about Terence McKenna and the Time Wave Zero? Yeah. So basically, McKenna, um, when he was a kid in, his early seven, in the early 70s, um, went down to the Amazon and took huge amounts of mushrooms with his brother. And basically, his brother had a sort of schizophrenic break, and McKenna became in communication with uh, the mushroom intelligence and began to get this continual download from the mushroom intelligence. And the mushroom explained to him that the mushroom was a, a galactic intelligence that disseminated itself through the universe on spores uh, that would be sent on meteorites. They would crash into planets, then wherever you know, mammals developed, the kind of central nervous system developed, it would create a symbiotic relationship with uh, mammalian species as it evolved into intelligence. And the uh, mushroom said that um, we were on the verge of making a fully conscious kind of symbiotic relationship with the mushroom intelligence that would uh, lead us to into the sort of mainstream echelons of advanced galactic civilizations. Um, and it also gave him information about time, which was this whole vision of this kind of fractal or hyperdimensional time uh, linked to the evolution of consciousness, So, which, which he tried to sort of quantify in this... Um, time wave zero, zero in terms of the acceleration of novelty and technology um, leading to, and then when he went home and spent months and months working on it, and he had sort of software, you know, he correlated it to the same date in uh, December 2012 that the Mayans used, but he didn't know 
the Mayans had done this until later. That's what he said. Um, and so Arguelles was somebody who went into studying this whole Mayan cosmology. Because the archaeologists just say, oh, you know, they were just really into time because, you know, it was a way to make themselves, the kings feel good, you know, because the kings could then say, oh, I'm connected to these events that were way in the past, you know. But Arguelles actually looked at their, their use of time and, and their obsession with vast cycles of time, even like hundreds of millions or billions of years, and he felt that um, they were indicating that we were, in, that we were in this final cycle that had started around 3100 BC and culminated in 2012, it was like a 5100 year cycle that um, was moving us through linear history at this increasingly accelerated rate till we would uh, enter into this, this uh, higher level um, galactic sort of framework. Um, so, and then, and then these other people have come along and elaborated his ideas, one being John Major Jenkins wrote a book called Galactic Alignments and really looked carefully at how um, different Mayan sites uh, kind of, you know, use this, reveal this material and information. Um, and then I think really amazing and fascinating is this guy Carl Johan Kalamin, who was a Swedish biologist and cancer specialist who worked for the World Health Organization. And he um, has written a book called The Mayan Calendar and the Transformation of Consciousness, uh, where basically he began to study this stuff, sort of taking Arguelles' ideas and elaborating on them, and then looked at the fact that the, the major Mayan pyramids, and there are three major cities, were all these nine-stage pyramids. And he ended up coming with a mo up, up with this, this model that he thinks the, those pyramids indicate uh, that the, con the evolution of consciousness on a nine-stage process, each one 20 times faster in linear time, uh, going all the way back to the uh, Big Bang 16 billion years ago and culminating in 2012. Uh, and each stage, you know, just, just um, it, it's, a, it's a very amazing f formulation. And I think, I think very, very convincing. And it's, it gets incredibly specific because these cycles, uh, each one has kind of um, alternating energy, uh, alternating sort of energy currents where they're kind of uh, light and dark energies um, that are related to certain Mayan gods. Um, and um, so, for instance, there was a last cycle, which was a 256-year cycle, which started around uh, 1755. Uh, which seemed to be connected to the industrial revolution and the movement into, you know, understanding how to work with power and uh, material transformation, uh, and and the sort of uh, positive energy current in in that cycle culminated around uh, between 1913 um, to 1931 or 32, which was you know the time when Einstein's theories were being disseminated, when Cubism and Modernism and Dadaism were being disseminated, you know James Joyce and so on. And then the sort of uh, negative energy culminated in um, uh, the next phase, which was 1931 to 1951, roughly. I think that's about right. Which uh, was the, the Holocaust, uh, Hiroshima, the atom bomb. Uh, so, um, um, so, so that's kind of his, this, this model he's working on. And it works on all these different stages, even when it gets down to the billion of year stages. And you know, he's really done a lot of work on elaborating uh, the model. Which means that in terms of the present stage we're in, which started, I think, in 1999, according to his model, 2007, November to November, would be kind of the crystallization uh, of the new form of consciousness that perhaps we're all kind of working towards. And then 2008 would be the kind of uh, destruction of the old form, uh, which for Kalman predicts would be a kind of uh, global socioeconomic collapse. 
And um, to me, that's very, very resonant when you look at a lot of stuff that's going on right now. I mean, a lot of the peak oil predictions have 2008 as a very important year. Uh, you know, we can see that this kind of global climate change is really accelerating right now. It's got, it's moved into all these accelerating feedback loops. So you have, you know, things happening like what just happened with New Orleans or with the tsunami uh, are becoming more and more frequent events, which are going to, you know, displace huge numbers of people. Um, so we're moving into a much more chaotic system, a chaotic situation where the um, socioeconomic structures that have been holding things together are really functioning. Um, worse and worse, uh, um, you know, to the point where they may simply just collapse at a certain point. I mean, Kalaman's thesis, which I think I agree with, is that, uh, you know, the, the, the positive potential here would be uh, 2008, a kind of collapse of the current socioeconomic structure, and 2009, a kind of uh, recrystallization into a uh, harmonic planetary civilization, uh, abolishing the uh, nation-state and uh, the corp you know this kind of uh, corporate structures the debt structures that are that are holding third world countries in slavery um, so that's i think um, what we need to work work towards i think there are actually practical tools um, that will come into play um, to do that um, so let's see um, yeah. So, so Arguelles. Uh, how many people know about his uh, the the his calendar, the dream spell? Um, okay. So, he began to realize that um, this whole time problem was the key, and that somehow our society that you know we, when we think about what's the deepest underlying problem with our civilization, you know um, we think usually it's the patriarchy or it's technology or it's you know. Uh, all sorts of things, but but like Gebser, he came to the realization that the deepest problem is is a mis a, a, a missed relationship or a messed up relationship to time. Now we'd actually embodied that in in in, a, in our calendar. That um, if you go back um, um, five thousand years, um, the cultures that existed pre three thousand one hundred BC roughly were um, you know lunar calendar based. Uh, very obsessed with moon cycles and um, often great mother worshipping, um, you know, matriarchal in that sense. And then there was this kind of movement into civilization with agriculture, you know, the building of Stonehenge and the pyramids, and we went from that kind of lunar focus to a solar focus, which was embodied in a, in a, in a solar calendar, where instead of focusing on the actual you know, real movements of the moon, we took the year, divided it into, and made it into a circle, divided it into 12 parts, um, and kind of imposed that on reality. So it was like we imposed this abstract grid of time, uh, uh, sort of mechanistically onto reality. And, uh, by doing that, we, we desynchronized ourselves from natural cycles. So his idea is that it's kind of like building a, a, a building from unsure foundations. The higher the building it gets, the more wobbly it gets until, until of necessity it, it's going to collapse. Um, and that he thought that, you know, because we had desynchronized ourselves from natural cycles, we don't, we don't think of the calendar as being very important. Uh, we think of it as just, oh, it's just a little thing. But actually, it, it totally inscribes us in this system. You know, it tells us when we were born, uh, when we pay taxes, when we go to school. You know, so actually, it's locking us into a whole kind of uh, structure of reality. So he began to feel that um, 
the only way to combat that would be to go back to this Mayan calendar material. Uh, and he began to receive these kind of direct transmissions and channels about, about uh, how to use the Mayan calendar. And he created this 13-moon uh, system, uh, which was creating this 13-28-day uh, uh, cycle, the, you know, saying that the moon cycle was essentially 28 days. And you know, I looked at it, I looked at his um, system, and I found it really, really interesting. And actually, had synchronicities about when I met him and talked to him. You know, I'd, I'd been mapped on his calendar. What's that? Okay, okay. Um, um, five minutes. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so um, so anyway, so he so he created this alternative calendar. Um, but I began to realize that his calendar is not, is not, I don't think, it's not that it's not correct, it's not that it's not, it, you can use it, it's a system, but I don't think it's the system. For, so for him, it's like if we have this rush, we have to get his calendar in place before there's this kind of, this global economic collapse. And he's been fighting for that and trying to, you know, present it through the counterculture in the underground and through the UN and every way he can think of. But um, when I studied the crop circles, that also led me to, into the stone circles. And I, and I felt like one reason the crop circles are in England, in the region of Averbury and Stonehenge, is they're actually introducing us to what's important about those stone circles. And Stonehenge is actually a temple of solar lunar integration, uh, which sort of somehow brilliantly like it's like it's like a bi it's like a it's like a computer that uh, puts together uh, uh, lunar eclipses. Um, and all this kind of uh, cyclical information. Um, so what we have to find a way to do, and it was almost like I think our Arguelles became too lunar. Uh, he realized that um, we, we'd sort of gone into this solar uh, masculine order, and that we had to go back to this lunar intuitive order. But um, he went too far into the lunar and the intuitive, whereas what we'd actually would need would be, once again, this kind of really complete integration of a kind of... Um, uh, intuitive and rational perspective on time. So what I'm suggesting in my book is that at some point there would have to be a kind of uh, global meeting of minds with uh, scientists, you know, astronomers, physicists, uh, people from different esoteric and indigenous traditions to actually just create a new calendar as a kind of unifying global standard. And what I thought was really brilliant about Arguelles's ideas is um, that if you um, had this new calendar, and, you, and it, there was a time when there was kind of a socioeconomic collapse, let's say what, what might happen in 2008. If you had this tool, and, and through the global commons there became a huge move to implement it, um, it could instantly delegitimize all of the institutions that are functioning under the old calendar system. So, you know, because they would all, the, the dates when they had created things would no longer have any relevance. So all of the nation state charters, all of the uh, third world debt structures, the corporate charters, the unfair penal codes, you could just wipe that away. It would be like a kind of uh, collective realization of humanity that we didn't have to be, you know, the inertia of those old systems no longer applied to us, and we could start from a more harmonic uh, basis. And I, and I think, or at least hypothesize, that one reason we've created this kind of global communications uh, system is, is to... Is to Act as a kind of a switcher, you know. So when and when these ideas need to be promulgated at the right time, they can just move very very quickly uh, around the planet, and uh, we can kind of harmonically move into this different um, framework. Um, so I guess I can stop there um, and take some questions. Okay, um, she's talking about the people who founded the, uh, the United States 
had had a connection to the astronomical and astrological knowledge. Um, I, I don't know if it was intentional or not. You know, yeah, I mean, but I, but, I, but um, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, it, it works on every level. I mean, that was that was the point of Arguelles's book, Time in the Technosphere, that the dating, you know, even in the Gregorian, it all kind of works. That, the, that these cycles all are, are kind of implicated. You know, it's kind of I see it as just like a single integrated process, uh, an evolutionary process, um, much like fetal development or something like that, that we're kind of going through on a collective level. You know. Yeah, I, I think just being, in, you know, oh, okay. Oh, it's tough to repeat these questions. They're long. Um, I don't know. He said something. Um, um, okay, how can I do this at home? That's what he said. Okay, yeah, so basically, like, um, I think, you know, just becoming increasingly aware, trying to completely, you know, you know, increasingly intensify your awareness of synchronicities, of all these things happening, you know, so that you begin to get this awareness, you know, of this, like the, the the Venus transits, you know, how this stuff actually does. Like when I when I was at Burning Man a few years ago, there was this uh, Mars came really close to the Earth, uh, the closest it had been in 60,000 years. I mean, I felt that that was kind of like perhaps some kind of vibrational shift in the planetary harmonic or something, you know, that. Um, um, so, so, and then just keeping more and more track of your own synchronicities, your own, your own passages, and being more and more present, you know, so you're, so you're really in all these different kind of levels of time at the same time, you know. And it's really like, when you really think about it, it's really the neglect of time that, um, has gotten us in a lot of trouble. You know, because every, the way we approach problems is we do not take time fully into account. Uh, so if you think about like the Iraq situation, you know, we're treating Iraq as like, oh, we have to protect Iraq, you know, this nation. Well, colonialism, you know, imperialism created this nation in the 30s. You know, it's a tribal culture. We impose this nation state on it. Then we act as that as like this permanent thing. You know, I think similar things on all levels, you know, um, in terms of um, personal relationships, too, you know, that, um, anyway, it's, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I that I should talk about is I don't think it's about uh, somebody who's what, what's actually going to happen on that day. I don't think it's actually I don't think that's a worthy place to put one's attention. I think I think what really is important right now is to figure out how to who asked the question because I can't see. I was trying to look at you. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, how 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 do we create the bridging mechanisms to bring into manifestation this more positive reality that we feel could exist and feel very strongly can exist when we come here? And it seems to me, and the one thing I'm working on now is a new magazine and, and media project, which is called uh, Medicine. And the idea is to disseminate a whole uh, amount of like sort of tools and information to people, even stuff on permaculture, complementary currencies, you know, really, really kind of sustainable uh, uses of, you know, production, you know, produ producing commodities that don't destroy uh, as you produce them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd be happy. I was actually going to just sort of uh, send out this notebook, or people can come up and give me their emails if they want to be included on our email list for this project, which hopefully launch in December. Um, so I think it's really like the key is not to. And that's I think the, one of the problems with Terence McKenna is that he really had people kind of projecting under this 2012 date that it's like, oh, it's all going to just happen, and we just got to like lay back and wait, and we're involved, we're taking psychedelics, it's amazing. No, it's completely the opposite. The only thing that's going to happen is what we do. You know, we have to take full responsibility, complete responsibility for this situation, and manifest and go absolutely deeper and deeper into the transformational process on a kind of personal and social and professional and societal level.
I, I don't think it's more. It's not. It's, I mean, it, it's more of both. I think that because you know when you when you begin to really think about it. You know, we've neglected this whole subjective domain of consciousness. You know, like Jung talked about the reality of the psyche and how most people were actually not able to really, really conceive that or ground that idea in, in reality. Um, so I think it's actually what we'll find is that it's both more scientific and, and uh, more intuitive. Right. Oh, yeah, I meant to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that people tend to be very, very scared right now, very, very anxious. I mean, there's this obvious, you know, increase, constant kind of ratcheting up of the pressure, you know, the sense like, you know, you feel when you go to an airport, I mean, you know, the TV, the whole thing, it's like this fear vibration is just increasing continuously. And it probably is going to keep increasing. I think one of the really amazing things about right now is how things are getting so much better and so much worse constantly i mean it is fucking awesome you know it is like mind-blowing just to like wrap your mind around that you know and i don't see why that's not just going to keep happening you know it's just going to keep getting more intense it's going to get better and it's going to get worse um and the only way to love it is to surrender to the process you know none of us are in control of the process it's like an it's like a non-dual integrated situation that um you can only attain mastery over you can't control it but you can surrender to it and the deeper you go into the surrender the deeper you can kind of work with the work with the energy and work on the transformation so yeah i think you have to love it yeah <laughs> thank you You know, that's a really interesting and I think very important point that Daniel makes about taking these indigenous cultures seriously if you're going to take on the shamanic worldview or the shamanic perspective of the world. What it boils down to uh, actually is is what your worldview is. What's the frame of reference you use to make sense of this place? For example, if your frame of reference was that of the Bush crime family, you most likely wouldn't be listening to this podcast, I guess. You know, that if your frame of reference, though, is the ancient shamanic traditions, then what Daniel's suggesting is that you begin exploring the personal ramifications of your worldview and see how it fits with the way you're living. For what it's worth, I also subscribe to much of uh, Kalaman's interpretation of the Mayan calendar. I can't say I identify with some of his final conclusions in the last chapters where he gets a little bit too religious-oriented for my taste, but overall I like his interpretation of the Mayan calendar as a map of human consciousness. A couple years ago, after I'd first heard about Kalaman and read one of his books, I found a way, I thought at least, to test one of his hypotheses or a part of it. According to Kalaman, the uh, Eighth Age, the Galactic Age, is to be an age of ethics. And this age began in January of 1999 and ends as do all the preceding Mayan ages, winter solstice in 2012. 
<laughs> I guess I ought to mention, though, that Calamon claims the date to be sometime in October in 2011, but uh, that catfight between scholars isn't something I care to spend any of my time on right now. What's important to me is the overall flow of events right now. The specific dates, I think, are going to take care of themselves. Uh, Daniel seems to support that idea as well. As long as we know where the current is going to take us, we shouldn't be too surprised when things happen a little sooner or later than predicted. After all, the physical event that we're talking about here is when our sun eclipses the black hole that lies at the center of our galaxy. It's also uh, the moment, by the way, when our solar system crosses into a different hemisphere in the galaxy. Now, on this planet, you know, when you have water swirling down a drain, it goes in different directions depending on which hemisphere the the drain happens to be in. Maybe uh, consciousness will begin to spin in a different, uh, maybe more Gaian direction once the Earth crosses into a new hemisphere of the galaxy. At least uh, <laughs> these things are kind of fun to think about, don't you think? Particularly here in the psychedelic salon. You know, one thing Kalaman said, though, that really made me take notice is that the midpoint of our present age, the galactic age, was June 2nd, 2005, just a, a few months ago. And he went on to say that after that date, the ethics scale would tip, and from then on, the more unethical a person was, the worse things are going to get for him. Now, a few of the things I've noticed that have happened since that date are uh, the Downing Street memos came out, white-collar criminals are getting longer sentences, the leaders of the House of Representatives and the Senate are all being investigated, as are all the top people in the administration, including the president and vice president, just to name a few of the little ethical lapses that are catching up with little Georgie boy. Now, I guess that was sort of a long way of saying that you'll be well advised, in my opinion, to maybe re-listen to this talk that Daniel just gave. In fact, you probably want to listen to it several times before you really grok the big picture he's pulling together here. Personally, I can't wait to read Daniel's new book. And uh, if you want to stay in close touch with what he's going on, uh, go to his website, which is www.breakingopenthehead.com. And uh, one of the other exciting things that Daniel is up to is he's uh, about to launch a new magazine this winter. So uh, stay tuned and check uh, Daniel's website and the Matrix Masters websites as well for announcements about that. Well, I guess I better stop talking and let you get on to the other podcast we're putting up today. And that's Eric Davis's Burning Man talk that followed the one by Daniel that we just heard. A big thank you to Bruce Damer for recording this and along with Galen for the pictures we posted of this event on our Blanque Norte 2005 Burning Man page. And as always, Daniel, thanks for all you've done for the tribe in particular and, and also uh, for this lecture series. Uh, in case some of you don't know it, Daniel has been a featured speaker at every Palenque Norte lecture series since they first began, and his support has been a big factor in the success of the Burning Man lectures. For sure, I want to thank the entire Maps Bops Snowflake Village team. 
I've received emails from a lot of people who attended one or more of the talks this year, and every one of them has been raving about the facility. So you guys did a spectacular job this year and made an important and positive impact on the 2005 Burning Man Festival. You're the best, you guys. Thanks for all your hard work. It's really appreciated. And our theme music here in the Psychedelic Salon is compliments of Chateau Hayuk. Thanks again, you guys. And thank all of you out there in cyberdelic space where we share this virtual Psychedelic Salon. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.